Welcome and happy Friday. It's June 24th, 2016, and this is Travelogue, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I am here with Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor for us, Laura Redman, who directs our digital edit team, and Lilit Marcus, who's an editor for the site. And I am Brad Rickman. I have a cold, so I <laughs> sound bad and I feel bad. But we're going to soldier through. And it's kind of appropriate because we're here to talk this week about travel disasters, travel horror stories. We spend a lot of our time celebrating travel, and that's what we're here to do. But we have to acknowledge that there are occasional downsides. There are occasional bumps on the path to paradise. And, you know, it's something that comes up in our writing, and it's something that comes up for all of our readers, and it's something that comes up for travel service providers themselves all the time. Um, everybody has a way of dealing with this. So it seemed like something we should go ahead and talk about. It's also kind of funny a lot of the time. <laughs> and um, it happens to us. I think what's crucial to remember is we sit here acting as if, you know, we're super prepared and we know everything about travel. And even as prepared as we are, knee deep in it, things go horribly wrong and you have to fix it. It's it, it has happened to all of us, and I think it's really good to remember that. I also yeah. think it's important that some of it is just going to be out of your control, and you have to embrace that. Like, you have to be a little bit zen about it. Bad weather is bad weather. Like, the airline can't fix that for you. You just have to wait it out. And if the pilot says it's too dangerous to take off in bad weather, I trust the pilot. Yeah, he probably knows what he's doing. Or well, she. Well, that's the thing. This isn't a travel horror story in the true sense of the word. These are inconveniences, the things that are out of our control, but hopefully we figure out ways to kind of find a little bit more control in the chaos at the end of the day. Where is that line? Like, what do we consider a travel disaster slash travel horror story versus something that's an actual disaster? Is there a time limit? Like, one of these that sticks in my memory is this Etihad flight that took place, um, or Etihad issue that took place in January of last year, 2015, where there was a plane stuck on the Abu Dhabi tarmac for 12 hours before a 16-hour flight. So they were held by fog, and they wouldn't let anybody off because the airport, was, which is not a big airport, was already packed with people who had been delayed by fog. So they left everybody on the plane for 12 hours and then a 16-hour flight. That's 28 total hours without being able to leave your seat. There was a shortage of clean water. There was a shortage of diapers. There was all, all of these things. Like, is 28 hours, 22 hours? Like, where? <laughs> I think time, I think a great way of demarcating this, you know, obviously, if there's any loss of life, we're not talking about that. We're talking about those horrible things that get in the way of you having fun. And I think saying, if it's a, if you put a time frame on it, I think that's a great way of saying, you know, if you were delayed more than six hours, if it took you more than six hours, that's a travel horror. I think it's also like when the doctor asks you to rate your pain on a scale from one to ten. Like minor inconvenience is a one. My flight was delayed. Yeah, you'll live. Uh, I think when it gets above inconvenience, especially if we're talking from a utilitarian thing about how many people it affects, an annoying kid next to me on the plane is annoying, but it doesn't keep people from getting where they need to go on time. But the flight that I was on where a kid running up and down the aisles during taxi meant the pilot stopped the plane on the runway to yell at the kid's parents until we could take off, that inconveniences a lot of people. And I think that's where the line is for that me. That feels like a five or a six to me, at least. My favorite, when I was on a plane, and I still cheered the pilot about this, I was sitting in 1A on a plane to London, a Delta plane, and I listened to this woman 
I listen to the staff be very polite, but talk about a woman in 26A. I remember it was 26A. <laughs> because she was claustrophobic and she needed more room. Now, this woman was clearly angling for... A, she was angling for, for an upgrade. But she got the plane somewhat delayed by all of her tizzying. And then she came up to the staff up front and she swore at them. Oh. Oh, yeah, that's always a good way to get what you want. And the pilot came out and said... No one swears at my staff. I am now entitled to throw you off my plane, and I want you to get off my plane. And the woman said, I'm going to stay. I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue Delta. And he said, you're welcome to try and sue Delta. Uh, this is my plane. You're not traveling. My name is Captain blah, blah, blah. Please take my card. Get off my plane. Cue applause. And it was amazing <laughs> because she'd been such a monster so it was sort of this horror that delayed us but I mean I particularly had a ringside seat and I must admit <laughs> afterwards I asked the staff and I said you know hey how and why did that happen and the purser said to me she said you know the minute anyone swears at us under aviation law all bets are off mm -hmm. really? so yeah so that was something that she that's interesting because cops have to put up with that Right, Do, like yeah. yeah, you can't arrest somebody just for swearing. Yeah, but at you. I and I'm sure one of the I'm sure one of the listeners could tweet us and tell us this. I think aviation and maritime law are very similar, uh -huh. and there are certain moral codes and behaviors and all sorts of things that are quite retro, but that are supposed to create a good environment on board. And I think that's what I'd witnessed. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen someone get an upgrade because they were swearing at someone. I've seen it happen because they were being really nice. <laughs> I think she was. I think she. I think she thought if she said she had a medical condition, it would just be, you know, inevitable. Yeah. Well, I said I was allergic to children once, and they wouldn't move me. <laughs> so, can you inflict a travel disaster on yourself? Yes, if you don't prep properly. I mean, so I I already wrote about this earlier this week, but um, I flew to Germany last week at a time when there were floods in Germany. So that's step one. Do you go when there are floods? I was convinced I could beat the floods, and I did. Fun fact, but um, you know, I'm leaving. I'm in Manhattan, and I'm in downtown Manhattan, and I have to get to JFK. And I know this is probably this might be boring for anyone who hasn't gone through this, but there are millions of people in New York who have. So it's rush hour at six o'clock on a Wednesday, and I have to get to JFK. And my flight You're leaves. You're making at, me sweat. Already. I know, I know. I have to leave. My flight leaves at eight fifty-five. I'm leaving at six. I think I have plenty of time. That's a three-hour window. No. So, you know, I ride the we're subway. We're all shaking our heads. Yeah. To say <laughs> we're, we're, no, Mark is actually biting his thumb right now. <laughs> oh I God, see everyone so, tensing. I'm the early air, but I'm there at like four. Well, that's another thing. We have been telling all of our readers to get to the airport early because TSA lines are ridiculously long right now. It is hit and miss. We've had some people fly through. I have global entry and TSA pre-check, so I'm convinced that gives me golden wings and I can just fly over the TSA line. Um, I always carry on my bag. I never check it. And I just, I pack light and I wear flat shoes and I'm prepared to run if possible. You know, I, I'm not opposed to that. So anyway, I take the subway because it says Uber or a cab will take an hour and a half. It says the subway will take 45 minutes. It being lie, the, the gods lie. of Google Maps. The gods of Google Maps, who I trust regularly. Right. Nope, straight up lie. You know, it takes me an hour and a half to get there by subway and I have to endure all the smells and the joys of rush hour, you know. With all your stuff. With all my stuff. And I get there and I have to check in at Singapore Airlines. I'm flying one of the nicest airlines in the world. I got a really great deal and they fly direct to Frankfurt and I'm pumped. And I get to the ticketing lady and she says I have to check my bag. She weighs it. She deems it 
wanting and she says it should be seven kilograms and it's over that i take things out of my bag i'm pulling out my makeup bag oh, my God. dot kit my sweater i have like four or five things you now were one in of my those hands la- you were one of those ladies surrounded by clothes at yeah. check-in yes. weren't you? Oh, like, absolutely this is like i feel like i would have a stroke yeah well i'm getting like there at that point and i'm getting so mad at her i'm poor kathy her name is kathy she did not deserve my <laughs> anger you know but i apparently didn't pack properly so i'm pulling these things out and she's like i still have to check it you're, the gate's going to close soon. You have to get this bag on. So I, I check it and I have all these things in my hands. Like my pride is in my hands. And she tells me that my global entry and my pre-check aren't valid on this flight because it's an international flight. Oops. Forgot that. See, that's so another took, thing so I could have t- planned for. So <laughs> pre-check it, it doesn't works work when honey? you get back into the country, but, but it leaving. doesn't help when you leave. Really? Yeah. I mean, some airlines have let me go through just out of, I think, expedience, but they don't have to. And you always have to plan that they won't. So is there another the, thing you can get that will get you into no. the... No. Pre-check? It will no. work with countries. That it will is work the with only countries. leg. Mexico, for example, will will recognizes the pre-check process. But if I go back to London, no, not at all. So, back to Laura's. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm breaking out in sort of a cold sweat. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am, I am honestly. Yeah. Okay, so let's do a time check. It is 7.45 and my flight boards at 7.55. Whoa. I am... Whoa. Facing down a TSA line that is at least an hour, if not more than an hour, and is angry. People are angry in this line because it's rush hour. Everyone is late. So I get in this line. I kind of resign myself to the fact How that- How did I, you not give up? Like, Well, I, I start thinking, can I shove my way past 150 or 200 people? Do I have sharp enough elbows to do that? I'm you're small. You're a small person. I you know. can just you're go not, through their legs. But you're I, not I'm exactly quiet. LeBron James. No, you got to right. be a weaver. That's what I am. Well, how do you weave without getting- nailed in the head. I don't know. I just didn't see a, a normal... Pretender at a sample sale. <laughs> well, so I I didn't do that. I just like sat in line and I tried to figure out what to do. And I hear this voice like off to the side. I hear someone yelling, Yoo-hoo! Straight R- up. Really? Yoo-hoo! <laughs> I can't even do it without that laughing. My grandmother. <laughs> I know. And Kathy wasn't like, grandmotherly. She was a lovely lady. Um, and I turn and it's actually Kathy and she's waving at me and she's beckoning me to follow her. So I start kind of following her in the line, dodging past people, just pointing at her, being like, I have to follow her. Let me by. She gets me all the way to the front. I went past at least four or five people in wheelchairs. I went past a pilot. She Whoa. took my bags out of my hands. You are mean. I know. Mm. I was awful. I was. I looked like royalty and I'm definitely not. So she put my stuff on the conveyor belt. I think she would have untied my shoes if they had laces and put them on the conveyor belt. She got me through security. She followed me through security, picked up my stuff off the conveyor belt and walked me all the way but to the this gate. Is, I think you're making a great point. And I think this is something we forget in the middle of a lot of the travel, the, tra- the travel snafus, the mega snafus. What are we going to call them? The staff, while we often think of them as our adversaries, are actually our greatest allies. Mm-hmm. Because normally when things go wrong in travel, they don't. it's not they made a mistake where they accidentally checked our bag to the moon. It's that they have to tell us something. And it is great to remember that actually if you turn to Kathy and say, Kathy, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is like a trip of a lifetime. Can you help? That is a way to turn what could be a disaster into a lovely story that you tell people. Are all your trips trips of a lifetime? <laughs> I think I think like, when I'm going strate- to Germany for a few days. When uh, strategic, take, take hey, every trip I go lie. on is my honeymoon, and I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> I think a little white lie that helps everyone is fine. Everybody likes but it. also the thing to keep in mind is that they have to deal with that stuff too. Like if a flight is delayed and they have to rebook everyone, that creates work for them. 
they have as much incentive to get you on that plane as you have to be on it yourself. But why do we... I think it's something interesting about travel. We have such high expectations that things will not go wrong. I think we should really look at travel as so many moving parts. It's like a Rube Goldberg contraption. And it's a miracle when it goes right, not when it right. goes wrong. And it's one of those weird things in life that we don't approach really thinking about the nuts and bolts, of those planes flying around and needing to arrive in time so we can take off in time. Or the room being ready in time. When the room is a bit late, we all get very testy. And you're like, that's because there are 400 rooms. And maybe someone was off sick. Do you know what I mean? Like... Yeah, <laughs> I see, see ambivalence. But I mean, I would I would also say like there are so that's a self inflicted one, and there are certainly those, and then there are the ones where like in your example of the hotel, I would sort of say like it's part of the business, right? Like you, yeah. you okay. it's, it's sort of like an SLA in the tech world. Like you tell people the room is ready by three thirty. It's your job to figure out how to make that happen time and time again. Look, right? don't get me wrong. My favorite travel disaster was. I went to Sochi last, uh, for the last Winter Olympics to do some segments for Traveller on, on NBC. And I was terrified of getting there via Aeroflot. And I thought, will it, will it get there on time? Aeroflot was flawless, if a bit 90s. You know, the food was a bit 90s. The staff were a bit 90s. The plane. 90s is better than 70s. I mean, it was. And it's, you know, it was very nice. Flying back, my, I sort of exhale. And I think, well, I have one more Aeroflot flight to take. And I take off from Sochi for my connecting flight to Frankfurt. What is it about Frankfurt, man? I don't know. This is, this it is a beautiful, beautiful hub. Have you ever... Okay. Everyone should go through Frankfurt, Frankfurt at least once. It is the most flawless... Frankfurt Hang on. Munich. I, no, I don't have oh nice things to say about Frankfurt. No. It is my least favorite. So Ooh, I, no. I connect... I take off early from Sochi on my Aeroflot flight. And I exhale. And I think... You know, everything is flawless because my Delta flight is idling there in Frankfurt. And I'm like, I'm into civilization, Germany and my favorite airline. And I toddle through the airport and I go up to the Delta transfer counter and I say, oh, hello, where's the lounge? I just need to. And the guy said to me, <laughs> good laugh. And I thought, hmm, strange. I just, am I dressed? Really? Oh, you are not taking off today. Why do you not know that? Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> okay. Just what? And he said, oh, do you not read the papers? And I said, well, I don't read regional German newspapers while I'm in Russia. So no. <laughs> oh, there's a big strike with everybody in the airport. No one is taking off. No, I have no idea when you will leave. Oh, who knows? So 24 hours later, I have spent an unexpected 24 hours in, in Frankfurt, which was a, a bonus. Did you leave the lovely. airport? I did. I very quickly, and I think this is another thing to remember, often in those disastrous times, I'm a great one to believe. Like, if it's going wrong, don't hang around. Get out of there yeah. because you know what? You could spend eight hours in the airport and find out it's still cancelled. Or you can say, you know what? I want you to book me tomorrow. I'm done. Right. Great. Right. Because I'll make the most, I'll turn this into a stopover. Dinner in Frankfurt. Dinner in Frankfurt. Which, you know, wasn't necessarily what it's I was looking Berlin, forward to. But... but the thing was, I did love the fact that I got to what I thought was the most efficient country in the world and encountered a strike. I didn't know Germany ever went on strike. I didn't know they were allowed. <laughs> Not permitted. And yet, I have experienced it. But again, it wasn't what I wanted after a week, a quite a grueling week in Russia. But looking back, it's a great story. And I think a lot of travel horror stories end up being the things, the war stories you love telling at of a dinner course. party. So speaking of strikes and countries where <laughs> you fully expect there to be a strike, I was just in France. Um, I was in Switzerland and France for two weeks. And I was going to a wedding in Chamonix, which I'd been really looking forward to, but 
I kept reading the news and I kept thinking, oh, this is hilarious. This strike will definitely be over by the time the Euro Cup starts, which definitely did not happen. And what did happen was that in addition to the SNCF uh, French train worker strike, there was a garbage strike. There was a Air France pilot strike. And there was a Charles de Gaulle uh, air traffic control strike. That's not even a trifecta. That's so who a wasn't on strike? Who was working? <laughs> yeah. Swiss people. Oh. So it was great. <laughs> the closest airport to Chamonix is Geneva. So a lot of the wedding guests were flying into Geneva. There's a great express bus company that sort of caters to the ski season crowd that's very cheap and great in the summer. So getting to the wedding, zero problems. After that, all the train travel that I had booked months in advance, like a dutiful little traveler, went to hell. And I feel really lucky that at least I had a couple things working in my favor. So I speak French enough that I could understand all the train announcements. I could go on the SNCF website, which doesn't have a great English section, and get updates about which trains were running, which ones weren't. You could check your schedule the night before and see if it was canceled. And I was able to talk to people in the train stations and make alternate plans. And I didn't have a super urgent deadline for when I needed to get back. So I was really lucky in that I had some flexibility. I didn't end up in the places I thought I was going to go to, but it worked out. So after the wedding, I was supposed to be going directly on to Marseille. My train was canceled. I ended up getting a train to Grenoble. And that was a town that had never really been on my radar. I mean, I have a friend who went to business school in Grenoble and described it as the Cleveland of France. So it had never been on my radar. Cleveland just had some great success. So let's give it a little little bit of credit. Totally. I'm just quoting someone. I would have said Detroit, but okay. I'm (laughs) quoting someone. Well, it's not industrial. Um, It's it's more of there's a very big famous business school there. So most of the travelers are business travelers. It's not really full of boutique hotels. It's a ski town too, though. A little bit. I mean, obviously I was there in the summer. So it's a pretty different scene. There weren't a ton of tourists there. But it ended up being really cool. I just sort of booked myself the first hotel that I could find in Grenoble, which was awesome. Um, It's a French hotel chain called Aco, and there are about seven of them in France. Uh, They're all wonderful. I had a great experience. Everyone was super nice. Um, They took so much pity on me because of the train strike. I ended up choosing a random restaurant for dinner that was the second oldest restaurant in France uh, and learning a ton about the history of this town, and you can see a lot in a day. And then the next day, I was able to continue on to Marseille and do the rest of my trip. But honestly, if not for the strike, this wouldn't have happened. And it really also bonded a lot of people at the wedding together because we were all dealing with similar stuff. Some people had come through Paris. That's something. And I think that's another thing. I remember having a plane snafu to London once. And the airlines were not being super communicative. And I I knew a solution. And I sort of corralled everyone to inform them so that we all en masse asked for what we needed. And I think one of the nice things is that sort of we would in Britain we call it the Dunkirk spirit where you pull together under duress. And it is quite nice where when something goes wrong, that's when you sit in the lounge or you sit at the gate and you talk to someone and you're like, oh, do you want to share a, do you want to share a rental car? Right. And that's another thing that I think is kind of weirdly nice about these crisis moments. And I, I'm not talking about traveling with a Depends three-year-old. Depends on who you end up sharing the rental car with. I mean, have you ever... I've never shared... A, I, this feels like... I feel like if I shared a rental car with someone, I'd be in, like, planes, trains, and all. It would be... Yeah. I'd be with John Candy. Yes. We can only hope. <laughs> but, no, but have you? Has, have any of you guys ever shit done yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, what ended up being really kind of cool was, you know, I was in all these random French train stations, and sometimes there would be site personnel who spoke English and sometimes there wouldn't be and people figured out that I spoke English as well because I would chat with my friend in English and then go and ask somebody from the train station questions in French suddenly all the other tourists were like hey so you speak French right and it ended up like 
I felt really useful in that scenario. Like we were all on the same page. We all wanted the same thing. We were all in the same boat and like I can be useful here and it's good travel karma. Like who knows what's going to happen to me next time. So none of these, none of these stories are impressing me. These are not bad What are you, do you Wait, what do you want? You want tick bite fever? <laughs> you want tapeworms in Indonesia? <laughs> I, I, yeah. Do you, have, well, do you have a horror story? I've got, I've got several horror stories. You tell I, us yours. Go on, Brad. You beat us. He's been waiting for I've us been to saving, ask this I've been time. saving one. I have one, not so. been waiting. I'm letting the dramatic the, build? the dialogue unfold. I think the worst experience that I ever had was in about 2007, 2008, when I was traveling in Palenque. And I was with my wife, and we went to um, we went to, we were traveling Mexico. We were traveling from Chiapas to uh, the Yucatan. On the way, we were going through Palenque. We wanted to see the ruins, which I'd been to before, but you know, when I was very young and and didn't really you know kind of like take in. It's very very rural there. It's very very kind of like rustic, and um, it's not like the Yucatan version of the Mayan ruins. It's a very different kind of place, and it's in the jungle. It's in the rainforest, and so we had booked some kind of little you know hippie you know, hotel or not hotel, but like a little, you know, someplace to stay. And we had no idea what sort of we were in for in the sense of like, uh, number one, the place itself, which seemed to have some kind of popular bar restaurant, but the rooms themselves were utterly deplorable, just horrible, smelled of sewage. It was the worst, <laughs> just like awful thing. But so we, we got there. We were exhausted. I, we took like a, um, a bus, I think, from uh, – we, we were staying in San Cristobal, so then we took a bus down and stopped in this little place right around Palenque. And we went into the hotel room, put things down, went to get something to eat. And all of a sudden, like the heavens opened and a complete deluge came down. So we dashed back to the room sort of closed the door. There was like space underneath the door where it was on a dirt floor and there was some kind of strange sort of sewage thing happening over on the <laughs> side. A motif here. Yeah. And we literally ended up passing the entire, like water started coming in through the roof. Water started coming underneath. The place was basically flooding. I mean, it wasn't flooding, but it seemed like it was going to flood. So we put all of the sort of baggage and backpacks and suitcases up on the top of this desk, this like pathetic little, you know, sort of makes Ikea look like, you know, the top of the line desk that was sitting in the corner. And we ended up just like in the center of this bed, dodging rain and 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 the smell of sewage got worse. Well, and did worse it flood with sewage? Worse. I'm waiting for you to say exactly. It's a- that was the <laughs> thing that was most terrifying, and that was the reason why we spent we would not leave the bed. Like the bed was, in spite of the fact that the sheets were completely soaked, that everything was wet, we were not setting foot on that floor <laughs> because whatever was coming out of the bathroom. <laughs> The water that was lifting up and and flooding out of the bathroom had an odor that was horrific. So we couldn't escape and go to the door without passing through the sewer water. Now, now Brad, if I... Why didn't you leave, Brad? I mean, four inches of sewage versus I had (laughs) flip-flops. Also... This is not a place that you travel with, like, hip waders. No, but... But it's, I also and also, think by the way, you pick up it was your wife like 105 and carry her, degrees. You pick up your wife and carry her through the sewage, oh, and then go and wash your feet off. You are from another generation. <laughs> you you say I will stay in the sewage, so, but I will say this: Did you endure? Yes. Somehow there was like sort of we fitfully slept through whatever this like horrible thing was. And then it went away because it's like a rainforest, and so like the the rain went away, and then it was so hot that things actually dried up. 
And so we sort of, sort of waited for it to dry up. How long were you on that bed? I'm picturing you sort of like gnawing on, like, you know, gnawing, <laughs> no, gnawing the... on fingers. <laughs> like weeks like, went by. Like stuck on a bed surrounded by. Did you have supplies? It was, it was, was, it was a Walking Dead scene. No, but eventually, eventually we got out and we like got our, our stuff had mercifully been. Because I just imagine we had put you it, floating on it like an ice flow. <laughs> The water receded from the floor enough for us to sort of walk across. And because we put all the bags on this desk, everything was soaked, but it was not soaked with the sewer water. It was just soaked with like rainwater. And so we were able to get out of there. And by the way, like to the point you were making before we went on the air in terms of like, you know, the silver linings and all these things, it was an amazing day. The next day was an amazing day. And we went to the ruins and stayed all day at the ruins. And, you know, it ended up being this kind of amazing, much better than the first time I had been there because we stayed through nightfall. And I guess we, we left the the little, you know, inn or whatever it did was. Did you stay there the next night or did no, you? Because I, I would maybe change hotels. We did not okay. stay there the next night. No, we got out. We got out on another bus. But that was that was a very bad Does experience. what? How would your wife tell that story? I think exactly the same way. Except they're, well... I, I don't know what you're getting at. What are you getting at? I know my point is I'm just interested because I also think that travel, I think travel horror stories, we are, I'm not accusing you of exaggeration, but I think we enjoy embellishing and making them. Do you think your wife would tell oh, it yeah. the same way? My wife and I may disagree on some things on this. No, we were perfectly <laughs> united. The horror was real. They but told I, this at enough dinner parties that they're, they're on they're message. On it was horrifying. No, but I just, but I think this. And there she were, is far more squeamish than I am. So it would probably be worse. <laughs> There is something, you know, again, we like exaggerating our travel horror stories because they are horror stories that don't matter. They're not about loss of life. They're not about life-changing, terrible things. They're about something that was really stressful at the time that you survived. They're a war story, and we like to just, you know, refine them until they're really good. I mean, I know I do that, but... Well, at what point aren't they just travel stories? I mean, what stories are we telling that don't have that little added element of drama? Because that's what we have at the end of the day. Exactly. We're, we're going out of our comfort zones around the world, and things get weird, and things get smelly, and you come home with diseases, but or you come home without luggage. sometimes drama has consequences. No, that's true. You're pointing Such at me. Such as? I'm oh, pointing God, at you. Oh, God, my lifelong struggle. Yep. Um, every time I go somewhere farther than... 12 hours from here, from New York, I come home with a new disease. So it's been... What does, what does that tell you about where you should go? That tells you no more 12 hour flight? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that doesn't seem like a hard There's one There's a solve. lot of world out there. So I, I, I don't know. I trying to kill you. <laughs> Indonesia, I came home with tapeworms, unfortunately. I think it's my fault. I just ate some suspect chicken. I can pinpoint it. We had bed bugs in Singapore. Again, I blame myself. And most recently in South Africa, we went on a bush. I keep saying we. My husband has also endured all of these things as well. Does he get the so. same diseases or is it just you? No, it's okay. it's a tandem thing. It's beautiful, so really. It is. It's lovely. It's how we bond. So <laughs> we went on a bushwalk on a safari in um, a beautiful reserve on the east coast of South Africa. And um, we were told that it was an area known for African ticks, which are different than the ticks we are accustomed to in the U.S., um, but they do come with their own little disease. And we checked ourselves. You know, we went on this half an hour walk. It was nothing. You know, we barely any brush. Checked ourselves, didn't see anything um, until later. My husband found one on his stomach, and we removed it, and it hadn't done anything. We thought we were in the clear, right? I get home. Three days later, he and I are both rough you know and we start looking and he notices three bites on his leg that he hadn't seen before and I have one bite on my stomach and then all of a sudden we entered 
48 hours of hell. It was like, I felt like I had been in a boxing ring for like nine, 10 rounds. I couldn't, my body was, felt achy. I had a crazy fever that kept spiking and coming down, spiking and coming down. Um, it was like the flu on steroids, basically. Uh, would you, did you make a mistake in that way of like, if you'd worn insect repellent, would it have made a difference? Oh, I bathed in insect repellent. So it wasn't, in other words, this was nothing that you could have anticipated. No. Does it require, was well, it like the wrong kind of insect repellent? No, I mean, it was what they had. They it had was what stuff, they gave you. They had stuff there and we brought stuff and I used both. I did like oh an insect God. repellent cocktail. I didn't care. It could have been a thousand deep. Jeez. Like I did not care. And we could have opted out of the bushwalk. I think that might be what I do next time or what I encourage people to do. It, it was an add-on. We did a, an amazing safari in an open-air Jeep for multiple days. And I think we just went a little too far with that one because I didn't really see anything on the bushwalk. We mm. examined um, some, you know, shrubbery <laughs> kind of. We followed some tracks. Um, but it, it didn't add to my experience as much. And I came home with tick bite fever, which um, no doctor. We went to four doctors. They were all, like, so amused by us because it was a new disease. And they kept being like, it could be we, this. It could be that. We want to put you in a paper. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, that's fine. Put me in a paper. But after you've cured this horrible Right. Fever. Did they start calling other people to come in and look at yes, you? Yes. They actually did. Yes, you hate that. And then I called. Well, I talked to another doctor who um, I asked to prescribe uh, antibiotics, some, like, serious antibiotics, because that's one way to treat a course of... Um, these kind of bites, you just clear it out. Mm -hmm. So that worked. That worked for me. If anyone's out there and you ever get anything remotely close to this, go to your doctor and ask them if antibiotics would work. That's okay. my takeaway. That that is the that is a, a bad, my takeaway is I don't really like the outdoors. So that's another affirmation of why you should stay in cities. That's how I feel. <laughs> but have you ever had a really bad experience in a place where you would never have expected to have a bad experience? That's a good question. I I would say. I don't know if this necessarily is a bad travel experience, but I've definitely dealt with some street harassment. You know, being a woman traveling solo, it always kind of comes up and you don't necessarily but know. where you wouldn't have expected it? I don't know if you can say where you would expect it, to be honest. Like, I live in New York City. Sometimes it can change block to block. Like, I don't know. There were some places that I had heard of other friends getting harassed where I was fine. Some places where everybody else had a bad experience and I had a good one. I mean, you can't really know. And you can do the prescriptive, don't walk around by yourself at night stuff. Some of this was in broad daylight. Sometimes it was, if you don't know where you're going, ask a police officer because those guys are harassing you. And then the police officer harasses you. Like you, you can't ever really know. And when you're out of your comfort zone and in a place where you don't speak the language, you're at this automatic sort of vulnerable disadvantage. See, I used to, I used to, my first start in travel was taking Americans on art tours around Europe. And once a year, all the tour guides at this high-end firm that I worked for, we would have a, a get-together. And this podcast reminds me of that get-together. But that get-together was a whole lot raunchier, and the stories were We can try to raunch more. it up for um, you. Well, <laughs> no, but I remember... One of one tour guide, you know, in Italy, I worked mostly in Italy. One tour guide in Italy, uh, telling the story of how he'd maybe gauged his group wrongly. And I think we all agreed after he said it was sort of jaw dropping because a group of very innocent schoolgirls from Nebraska were on a bus in Rome with their teacher. And the teacher had told them to form a circle so they couldn't be harassed. And one of them stepped out of the bus and sort of found something on her skirt. That a gentleman had left oh, there for her. Oh, really? And the tour guide said, "You should, you should be flattered." Oh, mm -hmm. oh dear. And I, and where we, was which city? That was it. Was in Rome. Oh. 
The and city it, where they told me to talk to a cop if men were harassing me, and then the cop harassed me in Naples. Exactly. When I was in Naples, my tour guiding story, when I was in Naples, the only time I've ever had to call the police in my life, <laughs> anywhere, um, I was in Naples with a driver who was German. And I don't speak German. I speak French, Italian, and English. So I couldn't communicate with him. How does a German, like, handle Naples? So thank you, Brad. That's exactly the this problem. This is like, these are polar opposites of the having, approach to Having life. met that German in, in Switzerland and realized that he hated to have to drive through Italy for the next two weeks, and I couldn't communicate with him because we didn't share a single language. I knew it wasn't going to go well. Fortunately, I'd been tour guiding for quite a while at that point, so I, did, I, I was able to anticipate this. Werner found Italy very stressful, and the further south we got... The more oh, yeah. <laughs> angry Verna got. Yeah. And as we drove through Naples on the way to the port to go to Capri, a little Fiat tried to cut up the bus we were on. And Verna pulled the bus to a halt and without missing a beat, and I'm not exaggerating on this for good effect, I wish I were, reached behind his chair and pulled out a hammer that he had handy and waved it at the driver <laughs> of the Fiat, threateningly. And after they'd had their contretemps, we pulled away. And I went to the port and I went to get the tickets for my group of 50 people who I left by the bus. And one woman ran over to me and she said, Mark, Mark, you need to come back because Verna's having a fight. And our driver had been pursued by the Fiat driver to the port. And I got back to see them with arms rolled up and brawling Excellent. on the port. And I called the police and they spent the day in a jail to cool down while we spent the day on Canberra. Well, nice. Ooh. Well, you got the better part of that. Well, we wait. did, but it was but it was it was also a reminder. I think it was a very it was a good reminder of like he behaved very badly and I think he thought he was going to get away with it and the driver pursued him. It begs the question, have you ever been arrested abroad or no. come close to being arrested abroad? Not even you, Mark? Oh, no. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that shade. I'll take that shade. I do have one story. That I didn't get arrested, but I could have. I was with a group of, I did um, a study abroad program in Madrid when I was in college. And I went with a group of, th with three other girls to, we wanted to go to the running of the bulls, which was the stupidest idea I've ever had in my entire life. Sometimes things are once in a lifetime experiences because they're so horrible that you never want to do them again. <laughs> and sleeping outside for three days in a park that people are using as a public toilet is one of the things that I never need to do again. So the three women that I was with are all fluent Spanish speakers, except for me. Mine's okay. Like I can ask for directions, but it's not great. And I had this feeling that if one of us got separated from the group, it was going to be me. Like the one with the terrible Spanish is going to be the one that gets separated. And so in Pamplona, even though the running of the bulls is the last day, people are there like the whole week ahead. So by the end of it, it's just a mess. There are people everywhere. There are people sleeping outside because they didn't want to pay for hotels and everything books up early. So we were trying to use the bathroom in a bar and the guy was charging us. And we were like, yeah, that's garbage. I can't believe you're charging us. So one of the women I was with stole a bottle of rum that was left unattended on the bar and decided that that was what we got in exchange for having to pay to use this very gross bar bathroom. About 20 minutes later, a cop emerges from somewhere, follows the four of us and starts screaming at us in Spanish, like, where's the bottle? Give it to me. I pretend I have no idea what he's saying. And then, of course, I have the biggest backpack. So he immediately like grabs my backpack off of me and starts searching through it. And I didn't have it, but I knew who did. <laughs> and I was like, after he searches me, he's gonna search all did of them. Did you give her up? It's a bit like it's yeah. a bit like it's a bit like you you know, waterboarding. <laughs> yeah. Like so, I was like, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And he kept saying, "Dame la botella, dame la botella," which means give me the bottle. 
So I just pretended I had no idea what he was saying. And I put on, I'm from the South. I put on the most Southern accent that I could muster. And I was like, I'm so sorry, but I have no idea what you're saying in the Spanish. And I'm so scared. And I just want to go back to America. And he was like, oh, honey, like, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. And like, just starts talking to me and is like, I didn't mean to search in your English stuff. In English or in, in Spanish? In Spanish, yeah. but I mean a little English, but he like immediately changes his tone and he had looked through my stuff enough to see that I obviously didn't have it. And then my friends start making this like very careful exit while he's talking to me. And like, I start crying and he's comforting me and he's like, I'm really sorry about this. I guess it was a mix up. And after I finally get him to leave, I find my friends again. And we drank that thing in about 20 minutes and got rid of it. <laughs> you got rid of the evidence. The equivalent of getting out of a parking ticket, too. I feel like you could have pulled well, that off. I don't then. drive, so I have to, like, cry to get out of other situations. <laughs> have any of you guys had a travel, a sort of travel horror story where something bad happened to other people? Or does that go outside of the bounds of the definition that we've given here? Not death, of course, not not death, but just something bad happening to someone else. Adjacent, like horror, horror adjacent. You know? Horror adjacent, <laughs> well, have, or or that involved you in some kind of way, right? I, I don't have know other people's me, stories but. that I'd want to share, but I feel like I can't. I feel like they need to save them for their own podcast. Well, I'll, like, gi- I'll give you I'll give you an example. I was on a flight to Europe. I think I was flying on uh, Lufthansa, and the plane was preparing to take off, and I was sitting in an aisle seat, and. There was a guy sort of sitting across the aisle and like one row in front of me whom I could see. And I watched him sort of go into his his eyes started to flutter. He sort of went into looked like he was falling asleep. And then all of a sudden he started to shake and sort of he was possessed by tremors. And then he started to sort of like convulse in the chair. And I felt like somebody needs to be doing something about this and it needs to be me. <laughs> I can, I'm witnessing. Are you a doctor? Well, by, no. By but, night? But like, you know, I start standing up and like waving at the, you know, I don't. And you're, you're gesturing, yes, waving right gesturing, now. Yes, gesturing, like, waving. I'm, I'm, you're showing how you would have been. And, I, and, and, you know, the guy had some kind of, you know, seizure or, or stroke or something like that. I suppose it's a seizure, not a stroke. Um, and, you know, the, the whole plane came to a halt we were we were actually starting to taxi when this happened and the plane came to a halt and you know everybody came off and they did find a doctor who was sort of back in the rows and to me obviously it wasn't a tragedy for me it was a tragedy for this guy I mean I think I think ultimately he was he was okay like they revived him and then they took him off the plane and and whatever but um like obviously that was not something terrible that happened to me, but it was something that t- happened next, next to me. But it begged me to be involved in some kind but of But that way. makes me think about how if I were a doctor, I would worry about every time I book a flight because your Hippocratic Oath means that you have to help. Yeah. So it's not uh, do you feel like helping? It don't is, we all feel that way? Like, don't you feel like I felt like it was a co- incumbent upon me? I think me there's to, common decency, but there's a difference between common decency and truly the oath of your profession. And I think it's also different to be the one who like gives someone a heads up that something is going on. You're not the person who has to perform open heart surgery <laughs> are there any instagrams or any uh websites that you guys have come across that collect these kinds of things like I, I remember i had this book called bad trips years ago that had like collected a bunch of stories horrible travel stories. i do love my my favorite book about the travel industry in general is air babylon which is part of a, a babylon series uh which started with hotel babylon which is made into a tv show and has continued with fashion babylon and pop babylon the air babylon is an assembly of confessionals from people who work on board planes and at airports assembled into a single narrative of a one person 24 hours at an airport and I learned more about 
the hacks and the tricks and the problems of traveling in that one book than I had learned in my whole career up to that point. And I love it. There used to be um, an A&E or an AMC show, I can't remember which channel it was, called Airport. And it was uh, behind the scenes at a Southwest desk when the airline was really new. I think they were doing it for the publicity. But it came on when I was in high school and it was really interesting for me because you would hear stories about, oh, this person got kicked off a flight or somebody was drunk. I hadn't really ever experienced it as a passenger because I hadn't traveled much. So getting to see it from the perspective of someone who worked at the airport, like, how did that person get that drunk? How do they know? When do they decide who they're going to kick off? And I just found it fascinating. It only ran for a year or two, but I feel like I learned a ton. And there's the passenger shaming. Would you consider the passenger shaming to be a travel horror story? The fact that that site exists is a horror story. I don't know. I'd rather read the My TSA blog or, you know, look at all the things that people are trying to get through. I think the TSA has the best sense of humor about all this stuff, by the way. They have, have like, ninja stars and nunchucks and guns of all varieties that they pull from passengers, like, trying to get through. And they write something quippy about it and make us all feel better about it. I mean, that is a service. The passenger shaming stuff is just nasty it's like just feels it i think the passenger shaming stuff is you 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 are red heather when you're reading the passenger shaming you are just looking down on everyone and you know we've all had a bad flight where we've had Did to you take just reference heathers, heathers i know well done what's you're, your wow. damage mark <laughs> <laughs> oh we, that that's was the like only, a whole other that's the only non-profane line from <laughs> exactly. that movie that popped into my head <laughs> No, but, but you know, I think passenger shaming, there's something, I think, tonally really unkind about it, which makes me very uncomfortable. But I think the TSA does manage to celebrate the craziness of what they have to deal with. And I also think we forget that when we're frustrated with the TSA, they, and there are underperformance, but it is good to see the human side. And I think, that and I think the difference with passenger shaming, because it's not a blog, it's an Instagram account, I think you're just missing a lot of context. Depend, and they don't necessarily write the whole story. So sometimes I think there are just cultural differences. Occasionally they'll post something where I'm like, oh, is that bad? Are you not supposed to take your shoes off ever on a plane, even though you're not getting up? Like It's certain stuff that Sometimes I don't understand why it's on there, and I I feel like it could be kind of chalked up to interpretation. Sometimes it just feels like it should be called, my ass is too big, you know? Like, it feels like they get really repetitive after (laughs) a while. And I also think that when you work in an industry and you deal with it every day, like, when you work with a hammer, all your problems look like nails. You know, I write things on the internet every day, so I have a lot of opinions about how the internet works, (laughs) but I don't think most people care as much as I do. And I think because these are people who are on planes every single day and have dealt with a full spectrum of human behavior that they have a lot more stuff that they care about that I think the average flyer might not even notice. Mark, what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story, thank you for asking, Brent. I think the moral of the story is that every time we've had problems, you turn, I always think everything in life is a good story or a good time, and the best things are both. So you'll either enjoy it during or you'll enjoy turning it into an, an amazing anecdote later. Hopefully an experience of life is both, but that travel inconvenience you get. You can hone and whittle into the best story to kill people at dinner parties. So that's the way I look at it. All right. And I I think also sometimes a really bad experience can show you a side of yourself that you didn't know you had. And sometimes for the better. I mean, if I had if I could have chosen not to deal with a French train strike, I wouldn't have. But all things considered, I was so happy with how it turned out. And I ended up being really proud of myself. Like I could think on my feet really quickly. I was able to figure out a hotel. I spoke enough French that I could not only help myself, but help other people. Like by the end of that experience, I was just happy that I was capable of that. And I and I don't know if that would have come out necessarily. 
Right. I mean, it does bring out kind of the best in us, you would hope. I mean, Brad, your story about getting up on the plane to help the passenger made me think, would there be passengers who would be so scared that that could happen again that they might not fly for a little while? Is that a trauma to them? Is that a trauma to the guy you were helping? Or is it, you know, do you see camaraderie? Do you see people rally and, you know, fight together, whatever it might be? And does that encourage you to, you know, step outside your comfort zone again in the future? I I would hope the latter. But that's what it does for me. Like for every fever I've come home with, you know, I just want to go somewhere new. Why not? I mean, that's part of the fun, right? It's my souvenir. It's my souvenir. Yeah. And I think it also, I don't know. I I think I'm closer to people that I have gone on short trips with sometimes than I am with people I've known for years, because those kinds of situations can really force you into learning a lot about each other. You know, my ex-boyfriend and I, we really saw, you know, we had a bad experience when we were traveling and we sort of saw different sides of each other that made us really reconsider our relationship. It was like, oh, I don't like the way that you handle a crisis. And this is something that I really want to know about you. And at that point, we hadn't been dating that long. And it was such an interesting way to see each other for the first time. Educational. And you guys, Brad and his wife, survived a sewage-flooded hotel room, so you know that's love. We survived a London to Cardiff train that had to stop halfway because hooligans, who were identified to us as hooligans, threw rocks at the train. Okay. Love, uh, disease, uh, (laughs) horror, love in the time of cholera. Horror, horror, (laughs) great stories. Okay. Thanks to all of you for coming and telling your horrible stories. Those are terrible. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes and we are on SoundCloud and wherever fine podcasts can be found. And visit us at cntraveler.com. Uh, we are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please tweet at us. Um, send us feedback. Review us on iTunes. Do all of the things that the internet permits you to do. Why don't we go around the table and tell people how they can actually get in touch with you. Mark? You can reach me on Twitter at Mark, M-A-R-K, J-L-Wood, E-L-L-W-O-O-D. I'm Laura underscore Redman at Instagram, and I am Danon825 on Twitter. Um, and I am Lilith Marcus, L-I-L-I-T-M-A-R-C-U-S on Twitter, and Lilith Goes on Instagram. I'm at Bradrick, and that is our show. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. <laughs>